For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a veteran shares his story of survival during the attack on Pearl Harbor 75 years ago. Find out how the legacy of uranium mining on the Navajo Nation is being explored by a new generation of artists. And I'll talk with comedian Tig Nataro. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The 20th century is history, but close enough that men and women who live through events that now seem legendary are still with us. A living link to the past, who bore witness to one of the most fateful days in U.S. history, made a recent visit to Tucson, where he shared his experience in his own words. Here's the story from Mitchell Riley. His name is Lauren Bruner. He's a World War II Navy veteran and survivor of the attack on Pearl Harbor. But the U.S. had not gotten into it yet, so... He's here at the University of Arizona to help commemorate the 75th anniversary of the attack that marked day one of all-out U.S. involvement in World War II. The uh, loudspeakers all come on, quarters, all hands, quarters. That meant you go to your battle station. The 96-year-old is one of a handful of survivors from the battleship USS Arizona who is still alive. What's on your mind at that point and also what changed after the attacks? He's here with this group of Navy and Marine ROTC students taking questions and sharing his story. But then as these planes are flying around, you spot the Japanese insignia. Uh-oh. Aaron Clayton from Spring, Texas, is a naval officer candidate pursuing his degree at the University of Arizona not just read about it, not just see it on the TV, but to have history right there in front of you, talking to you, that, that's, that's truly an amazing experience. He just has a ton of life still left in him, and it's just amazing knowing what he went through that day, seeing where he is in his life right now. One of those heroes that you never, never would know about unless someone told you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir, for everything you've taught us. Thank you. Thank you for your service. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to hearing on your legacy. Thank you. He also made his way to Davis-Monthan Air Force Base to visit with pilots and crew of the 47th Fighter Squadron. Pilots from the 47th shot down more than half a dozen Japanese warplanes during the Pearl Harbor attack. Here, they share war stories, past and present. That's incredible. Finding common bonds that only those who serve can fully understand. Next day, we both go to the Long Beach. Bruner joined the Navy shortly after graduating from Alma High School, just west of Olympia, Washington. After boot camp in San Diego, he received his orders. Here's the USS Arizona. I never see anything that big get afloat. So that was uh, quite a thing you get aboard something like that. Arizona was granted statehood in 1912, becoming the 48th state in the Union. It also became the namesake for the USS Arizona, launched out of New York June 19, 1915. As with all new sailors aboard a ship, he was assigned to the deck force. You're clean and sweeping all of the decks, paywork and all. Keep everything nice and shiny. Several months later, another sailor would report to the USS Arizona. 
his best friend and high school classmate, William Mann. So I always call him Billy. I didn't know he was even interested in coming in until one day we, we shipped pulled back down into uh, Long Beach, California. Out on the deck cleaning up, one guy picked him on the, on the shoulder and said, hey, he says, I'm here. Looked around, here's Billy. Billy, Billy Mann. Oh, we had, a, we had a great life. And we got time off, we'd, we'd go over, over the beach together, go around and uh, try to find some girls. And we found lots of them. Both men would promote into new roles. Billy Mann became a gunner's mate. Bruner, a fire controlman in charge of directing the 50 caliber guns on board. Anti-aircraft gunnery system that was it, working with the guns, the big 14-inch guns. And so yeah, that was great. Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. Nice uh, summer, summery day, Sunday. That was an off day for, for duty. It was just before 8 a.m. and he was getting ready to attend church services on the ship. After church, I had a, a date to meet a little gal over on the beach. Her name was Nikki. Never got to see her. The USS Arizona's public address system came on. All hands on deck. Man your battle stations. This is not a drill. The surprise attack came in two waves. Bombing grounded U.S. planes around Pearl Harbor and the U.S. fleet on Battleship Row. Bruner reached the fourth deck before arriving at his battle station. I had one more to go up. Well, I looked up the channel and I could see these planes coming in. They were coming in shooting and there was just ammunition coming all over the place. He was shot twice in the leg by machine gun fire from a Japanese plane. Two uh, bullets in my left leg one big dive and I made that five-foot entry right into my battle station. Bruner says the enemy was close enough that he could see his face. And he just closed up uh, sideways, swung around the front of the ship, between the ships. Big old grin on his face, mouth wide open. I could see all those teeth. <laughs> you want to reach out and bust him one. But then uh, all heck broke loose after that. Japanese bombers hit the Arizona four times with their bombs. And one of the bombs hit the number two turret, which is under my feet and about 20 feet ahead of it. That 1,700-pound bomb glanced off the turret and dove three decks below into the forward powder magazine on the starboard side of the ship. Which, unfortunately, uh, was where my buddy Billy Mann that was his station. It just blew the heck out of everything. Lifted, lifted that whole bow, they say, about 30 feet off of the water, and then down again. It had one hell of a fire. Moored on the port side of the Arizona was a repair ship, the USS Vestal. Crew from the Vestal threw a rope to a position on the forward mast, where Bruner and five shipmates were stranded. And we tied that to it, and. My six people crossed that, that, that line. Lauren Bruner was the second to the last to leave the USS Arizona. Shot by enemy fire and burned over 70% of his body, 
He crossed that line hand over hand nearly 100 feet, charred and bloodied. 2,335 military personnel died at Pearl Harbor. 1,177 sailors and Marines were killed on the USS Arizona. Lauren Bruner was awarded the Purple Heart, and after recovering from his wounds, he reported to the USS Coughlin, fighting in eight more major battles. It's got to be known to the younger ones. You have to remember who was there, their fellow men, some of who got through okay, but who were brave enough to stick around and finish it out. As for the future? You got to expect it someday. Maybe not. We hope not. I'm Mitchell Riley for Arizona Spotlight. You can watch Lauren Bruner share his story on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. There's a map on the wall of the Cameron Community Center on the Navajo Nation with nearly 100 red dots scattered over it. They mark the location of abandoned uranium mines. More than 500 of them are on the reservation. The sites have been linked to cancer and other deadly illnesses, but nobody knows the extent of the emotional trauma of living on land that's contaminated. That's the focus of a new project to raise awareness and create healing through art as we'll hear next in this story produced by KNAU science reporter, Melissa Sevigny. 30 artists gather at the Cameron Community Center to share a traditional Navajo meal. Fry bread sizzles in hot oil, and mutton ribs cook on a campfire. As the food is prepared, local residents share stories about what it's like to live near uranium mines. A granddaughter should not have to walk this earth without her grandma just because of someone else's mistake. Angela Jenkins Riggs reads a poem about her grandmother who died of cancer. A grandma should not have to say goodbye to her granddaughter just because of someone else's greed. There's anger and grief in the room, but also hope that the artists here can make a difference. They come from all over the U.S., painters, photographers, sculptors, both native and non-native. They hear from locals and scientists and tour this mine-riddled corner of the Navajo Nation. Vinaya Yazi says the experience has been overwhelming. In a way, being an artist is a burden, especially if you're an indigenous artist, because you take on so much. You just, like, your body and your senses, like, it just inhales everything. Yazi says she's scared to spend time in this contaminated place, and she wants to capture that emotion in her art. That's just what one of the project organizers, Devana Blackhorse, is hoping for. She studies psychology at Northern Arizona University. I really got frustrated into research because there was nothing. So that's why we kind of started all this, so that we could maybe create some kind of interventions, and we were thinking art interventions. Blackhorse wants to immerse the artists in Navajo culture and show them how connected the people are to a land that's making them sick. I wanted them to see that the animals that come from the land, they eat like the plants and they drink the water and this stuff moves through us. 
Uranium is in the water, the dust, and the bodies of some people who live here. It's been linked to cancer, lung disease, and kidney damage, but there's little data on the psychological effects. Black Horse says few understand what the Navajo are going through. They think our struggles are over, but they're actually still happening right now. People are still really emotional, still really hurt and traumatized by this, so... I think we just kind of want to help people heal from all that. She partnered with the Flagstaff Arts Council to put together an intense training for artists. Part of it is visiting abandoned uranium mines. So we've just taken our buses up through an area that has been closed off with signs that say do not enter. Amy Martin is a Flagstaff photographer. She stands on a rocky bluff overlooking houses and corrals. This mine has been here for decades. The warning signs went up just last year. Martin says she wants to try to capture what she's learned here in portraits of the people affected. The extent of um, the effects of the mining, both on the landscape as well as on individuals and families and communities. I think that to me, um, I'm almost ashamed that I didn't, didn't know that before. Another artist, Tracy Watchman, is from Grand Falls, just south of here. She drives through Cameron often, but didn't know until now the extent of what people are dealing with. It's real overwhelming. It breaks my heart that people live so close to these areas. Watchman says her whole outlook now is changed. That's her inspiration to go home and get to work. I'm Melissa Sivany in Flagstaff. Rick told me that my career was a waste of my time and a waste of my intelligence. And he thought that I should be a doctor or a lawyer. He suggested that I quit comedy and go to business school. Like, even just a couple of years ago, <laughs> when my career was going fine, I was <laughs> making good money. I said, so you're telling me if I quit comedy and went to business school, something I'm not at all interested in <laughs> and ended up working in like a cubicle in an office somewhere with the life sucked out of me. You would support that. <laughs> and he said, absolutely. Tig Nataro's style is hard to pin down. It's not so much that she tells hilarious jokes, it's that she tells jokes in a hilarious way. Her delivery is often so understated that the revealing, candid nature of her material sneaks up on you. Also a filmmaker, Nataro has made a documentary and a TV series that revolve around the worst year of her life, which included a breakup, breast cancer, a double mastectomy, intestinal disease, and the sudden death of her mother. Many comedians might be reluctant to return to those events in their stand-up, but to Tig Nataro, it was necessary. She's visiting Arizona for two shows next week, and I spoke with her while she was having a night at home with her wife, Stephanie Allen, as they cared for their infant twin sons. So we have the babies, and then we're, um, my assistant's fixing the smoke detector, which has started doing that random beeping um, in the middle of the night. So today uh -huh. was our final straw. We needed to figure out which smoke detector was going off, and I think you found it. 
What's an example of some terrible advice that someone gave you about comedy? Mainly agents, managers, network executives, festival (laughs) producers, and booking agents. You know, a lot of times I think comedians get very off track trying to get their sitcom and and try and make their sitcom world appear in their stand-up, and they're not really writing what they think is funny. One of the funniest people I know is Zach Galifianakis, and there's no part of him that would go on stage trying to deliver his sitcom through his stand-up set. He just did what was the funniest thing he knew to say. And um, I just think getting lost in what people think you should be writing or doing on stage is a huge waste of time. Have you ever heckled anyone? You know, in the early days of doing stand-up at open mics, there was a lot of support that also would come through heckling <laughs> from other comedians. Yeah, kind of a But tough... I haven't outright heckled somebody. It's only been in supportive play amongst my peers in the days of coming up and open mics. It almost sounds a little bit like sparring with them. Yeah, yeah. When you're coming to Tucson, you're going to play a show here and also one in Scottsdale. Do you have any kind of a pre-show ritual? Is there something that you need to do before performance? No, I try not to get too caught up in all of that. Um, I feel like that builds anxiety because if you can't have your ritual play out perfectly, then you think your show is going to be doomed. And then if your show is doomed, then you blame it on the pre-show thing and Whereas I don't want to place blame anywhere, you know, I just, other than actually myself, I just, I, if I don't have a good show, I want it to be because I feel like I have work to do or I, you know, I mean, this is how much I don't have a ritual. I was in New York with my wife and babies going through Central Park and I ran into this friend of mine from LA that was in town doing the marathon and she was like oh hey oh my gosh all these people in New York and we run into each other what are you doing here and I said oh you know I'm just on vacation traveling with my family and then I took a beat and was like oh my gosh what am I talking about I forgot I'm doing Carnegie Hall tonight (laughs) and she was like how could you possibly forget that And I think that's just kind of the headspace. I guess that's my ritual is that I try to not have any sort of anything going on in my head leading up to a show because I forgot I was doing Carnegie Hall. It seems like you have a very patient personality. Would you say that patience comes easily to you? It's something I've worked on my whole life. I think I was the most impatient person as a child, but my stepfather, Rick, who is Bill on the show, just drilled it into me the importance of having patience and my mother was the most impatient person and I think my brother to an extent and we just had this constant reminder from from uh, my stepfather of the importance of patience and I do think it has paid off in my comedy (laughs) and life I mean I've had to be very patient in life and is that patience 
ever tested by your little boys? I mean, I think we're having a really good and fairly easy time with the twins, but I think about when we were expecting twins and everybody was saying, oh my gosh, your life is going to, it's going to be so insane and blah, 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 and they're not going to sleep and you're not going to sleep and the crying and Stephanie and I would always marvel over how much people couldn't wait to tell you the negative of what it would be like. And she said, let's say it's all of those things that we're exhausted. We don't sleep. They don't sleep. They're crying likely it will only be one year of our life. And that is a blip, you know. True. And um, I just think about that all the time, that any frustration or exhaustion, I just think I'm in the middle of a blip. So Sometimes people like to poke a little fun at, at NPR's kind of reputation and its rhythm. Are you a listener? Does Does talk radio mean anything to you? Because I know you really love music. Yeah, no, I definitely listen to NPR and PRI, and I had a podcast for a while, and my brother is in sports radio. I might direct listeners to that uh, clip that's online of you at a live performance of uh, This American Life, where uh, uh-huh. they brought out uh, Miss Taylor Dane. Um, yeah. Did, did you know that was going to happen? Uh, that's a secret that Ira and I never share. Tig Nataro performs on Thursday, December 8th in Scottsdale at the Center for the Arts, before heading to Tucson on December 9th to perform at the Rialto Theater. We have a link to her schedule, an extended interview, and video of Tig telling her legendary Taylor Dane story for This American Life on our webpage at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.